uh, we're, we're really moving right along uh, in our series through the book of 1 Peter. And if you're just now joining us, uh, or if you just need a little recap, let me do that for you. Uh, the Apostle Peter has helped the first century church and us uh, through the letter he wrote to them to understand uh, that as we await the return of Christ, our journey of faith, so to speak, is one where uh, we should understand ourselves as Christians to be spiritual exiles. That is, uh, while we may be at home in our earthly homes, this broken, sinful world that we live in is increasingly, day by day, revealing itself to not be our true and final home. We, we belong to another kingdom, an eternal kingdom, where the reign of Jesus Christ, the only perfectly good, true, just, and sovereign king ensures perfect peace for all who dwell there. And that kingdom is coming, right? It's, it's not yet fully realized, but it will be when he returns to make all things new and he clinches the final defeat of sin, death, and the devil. And until then, we are navigating life with the hope and the values of the kingdom of God. And if you've tried it, uh, then you know uh, that can be a difficult and at times complicated task. Amen? Amen? Okay. Ron's always there to help me out. So you guys feel free to jump in if you want to. So uh, Peter is, is helping us to wrap our minds around it. And he's done so up until this point by reminding us uh, of the gospel, right? Our, our living hope that Christ, by his life, death, and resurrection, has caused us to be born again and has called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And that our acceptance of that gospel should lead to a way of redemptive living, which the Bible calls holiness, okay? And he makes that connection between gospel and redemptive living quickly in the first chapter. And then the, the remaining four chapters are about uh, what that gospel-driven holiness looks like when it's lived out. So this morning, he's, he's shifting into a completely different facet of it. So as always, let's read our passage. Uh, we'll pray, and then we'll do our best to make sense of it. First Peter chapter 2, we're picking it back up in verse 13. It says, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. 
When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Father, thank you for this day that you have made for us to be glad and rejoice in the life-giving message of your son's life, death, and resurrection, the gospel. God, we have much to be thankful for. But as your people, that, that remains ever at the top of the list, the gospel. For without Christ, we would be people who might be able to experience some moments of happiness in this life, but who would be without eternal hope. So thank you, God, for the living eternal hope that we have in the good news of the gospel, our unperishing inheritance of Christ's righteousness that grants us to enter your kingdom. And now, Lord, I pray that we would, from this text that we've just read, apply that gospel to how we think about authority in this life. God, as Americans, we struggle with authority when we're not the ones in it, but it is instead over us. Help us to reconcile that difficulty now by the power of your spirit through your word for the purpose of showing ourselves to be your redeemed people living in ways that are peculiarly good and right amidst a culture of brokenness and sin that we might proclaim even in the ways that we live that you have rescued us, that you have redeemed us out of darkness and into your marvelous light. We love you. Jesus, and we pray all of this in your beautiful name. Amen. Well, let me begin by uh, just putting my finger on a big cultural tension of our time. The tension is between two seemingly basic principles, authority and freedom. Authority and freedom. There has been a tension for humanity uh, between these two principles really from the very beginning, right? God gave Adam and Eve great freedom at the start of creation. Be fruitful, multiply, have dominion over the earth, cultivate it and subdue it. Lots of freedom in that commission, isn't there? But he gave them that freedom under his authority. In other words, it was his freedom to give, and it was also his freedom to define and to set boundaries for. And there was really only one boundary, eat fruit from any tree except one tree in the middle of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. At first, this was no problem. There was no problem here. No tension existed until God's enemy, Satan, disguised as a serpent, created the tension with sin, telling Adam and Eve that 
Actually, authority and freedom do not walk hand in hand as God has told you. Actually, Satan said, God's authority is impeding your freedom. His rule is oppressive. It is restricting you from being totally free. That's why he gave you that rule, because he is a mean authoritarian who desires to withhold good from you and hinder you from experiencing the freest that free can be. Adam and Eve believed that lie, and the rest is history. In our inherited sinful natures, we have struggled with this tension ever since. In our society today, we see it on display perhaps most prominently in the framework of identity politics, uh, a, secular the- uh, sorry, a secular ideology that would divide everyone into two camps, two poles, left and right, liberal and conservative, who are in an endless feud over whose values have the best interests of people in mind and should grant them thus to be in charge. When the left is in the driver's seat, the right says, our freedom defined by constitutional amendments is being infringed upon. When the right is at the helm, the left says, our freedom defined by sexual identity, gender, and race is being infringed upon. But really, you know, you don't even have to look to politics. You can just look to the reality that deep down, none of us really loves to be told what to do, do we? Anybody love to be told what to do? I didn't think so. Spouses, parents, bosses, pastors, as sinful human beings, it just kind of rubs us the wrong way when an authority figure of any kind tells us what to do and what they're telling us to do runs contrary to what we want to do, right? We've been saying this for weeks now, that sin is always selfish. And thus, sinful humanity's mantra is, I'm going to do whatever I darn well please. And I don't care what anyone has to say about it, even if that person is God. This is the human problem. Do you know that? (laughs) This is the human problem in a nutshell. Heart-level, self-centered rebellion. From the toddler who first learns and begins excessively using the word no, to the teenager bent on sneaking out after curfew, to the business owner who cuts corners and tries to find loopholes in order to not pay taxes, to the husband who cheats on his wife, to the hardened criminal who commits theft or murder. There is an underlying sinful rebellion in us all a resistance to being told what to do, a felt tension between authority and freedom. But when we're saved, when we're born again, when God opens our spiritual eyes to see things as they really are, he clears up and he cuts that tension for us, right? God shows us that in our sinful, rebellious brokenness, our, our own best judgment about what, was, what seemed good and right for us, it, it proved to be lacking. 
and that he, as our good, gracious creator and heavenly father, actually knows what leads to a life of flourishing better than we possibly could. He knows better than we do. And this is where the term, the gospel term, redemption comes in. To be redeemed means to be ransomed. It means to be bought back from our slavery to sin. This is what Jesus did for us in the gospel, right? He came in human flesh to live the perfectly obedient life that we were supposed to live but never could because of our sin. Then he died the death that we deserved on the cross so that his blood could make perfect atonement for all of our sin, past, present, and future, and that we could be bought back, that we could be bought back, that we could be recovered and restored back to God's original purpose and design for our lives, which is to glorify him in all that we do. And so it's for this reason that a few weeks ago, we defined holiness very simply as redeemed living. That's what holiness is, redeemed living. Holiness is not a stale, boring, rigorously self-denying existence. It's simply a way of living that flows out of the gospel and views our relationship with God and his creation rightly, and that seeks to conform to his will for us, which he promises is going to give him the most glory and give us the most joy. Okay, That's what holiness is all about. And in that redeemed way of living, here's where we get to the the point of our text this week. God helps us to regain a right understanding of the relationship between authority and freedom. That authority is not inherently bad. Romans 13.1, the Apostle Paul states this clearly. He says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Sounds a lot like our text, right? But he says, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. So the scriptures tell us that authority is actually a good thing. It is a delegation of power from God to the leaders of human institutions for the benefit and for the good order of those that they Serve. Perhaps you have objections to this that you're thinking about already. Qualifications I should make on this. Don't worry about that. We'll get there. First thing is simply to see authority not as inherently bad, but as good because it is from God. Now, when it comes to freedom, I mean, we're Americans, right? (laughs) Do we really need an explanation of what freedom is and why it's good? Well, actually, we might be the ones who most need to have a redeemed understanding of what freedom is, because as I've said, large swaths of our population now define freedom in political terms. To the left, freedom is the right to identify however you please. To the right, freedom is the right to believe and be vocal about whatever we want and to possess firearms, obviously. To the libertarians, freedom is the right to be left alone, right, basically. But as Christians, we must reject these watered-down cultural definitions of freedom that have nothing to do with our worldview. We have, 
As Romans 8 says, the freedom of the glory of the children of God. That's Christian freedom. The freedom of the glory of the children of God. That is freedom from bondage to sin and freedom from the wages of sin, which is death. As blood-bought sons and daughters of God, we have the freedom of restored peace with God and Christ by grace through faith alone and the freedom of life lived for and with him by the Spirit as his image bearers. In other words, the gospel has given us the freedom, church, to be who we were designed and created to be. That's the freedom we have. Okay. So uh, these are our definitions of authority and freedom. Authority is a delegation of power from God to the leaders of human institutions for the benefit and good order of those they serve. Freedom is freedom from the slavery of sin, waiving of the ultimate punishment of sin, which is death. And so here's the relationship between these two, okay? The kingship of Christ for Christians has simultaneously placed them under the strongest, most perfect authority and given them the greatest possible freedom, okay? Both of those things at the same time. This point is crucial for us to understand if we're going to apply our text in 1 Peter this morning. How does our status as spiritual exiles, citizens of God's eternal kingdom, how does that status apply to the reality that we are undeniably accountable to a plethora of worldly authorities? What do we do with that? That's the question this text is going to answer for us. The answer is actually incredibly simple. Here it is. As men and women who have received true freedom from God, we are now free to submit to all earthly authorities, knowing that their authority was given to them by God. And thus, our submission to their authority is not contingent upon whether we agree with all the ways that they are using it. The only situation where we would intentionally disobey earthly authority would be a situation where that authority is asking us to disobey God. Sorry, can't do that otherwise. In the final assessment, we know that we will all stand before the ultimate authority, God himself. Amen? Every earthly authority will give an account to him for their use of the power that was delegated to them. And we, as God's people, will give an account for if we humbly submitted to them or not. See, I told you it was really simple. Let's end the sermon there. Just kidding. Okay. In our passage, uh, verse 23 is really key to understanding this. It says of Jesus uh, that he is our example for living this out. Peter says, when he was reviled... He did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but, get this, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So Jesus was willing to submit to the earthly authorities who he knew would kill him because he knew that they were not the final authority, but his father, the judge who judges justly, would vindicate him. And we, 
in our submission to earthly authorities are to have the same perspective. Our Lord Jesus is the true king. And while this is not accepted by all people right now, it will be. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is both Lord and God. After laying his life down for us and then taking it back up again, he made this explicit in Matthew 28. He said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, right? And yet, prior to his death, when he was being interrogated by the Roman governor Pilate, he said, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not of this world. And so this is our redeemed view of authority and freedom. The kingship of Christ has simultaneously placed us under the strongest, most perfect authority and has given us the greatest possible freedom. As men and women who have received true freedom from God, we are now free to submit to all earthly authorities, knowing that their authority was given to them by God. Right? Our kingdom is not of this world. And so we should not be fighting against earthly authorities, church. The subcultures of the world are trying, and in some cases winning, unfortunately, they're trying to persuade us that if we will give our time and our energy to advocating for the right candidates, they will turn it all around for us. Look right at me. No one is able to turn this world around the way that we desire it, except for Christ. Amen? Amen. No one is able to do that but Christ. And he has already promised to do it. Okay? So that's, that's good news for us. Our role in the here and now as we await that glorious day, as Peter says in verse 13, he says, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him. And then Peter says, it's not just the governing authorities that we are to submit to, it's to all authorities in our lives. Verse 18, he says, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the unjust. And next week we'll get into uh, authority and submission uh, within marriage. But the principle is the same all the way through. Whatever human institution we are a part of, in which authority has been placed over us, we are to gladly submit, Peter says, for the Lord's sake. For the Lord's sake, which is rendered elsewhere on account of the Lord, or another way, with the Lord in mind. Okay? I love what Pastor David Helm says on this. He says, people often respond to the call for submission to authority with resentment or defiance. 
But when the authority and view is duly constituted by God, submission is a beautiful expression of our confidence in God's sovereign disposal of all of life's affairs. One need not agree with rulers' political convictions or social policy in order to honor them in a way that honors God. Living today in a contentious political atmosphere gives us the perfect opportunity to put on display our ultimate allegiance to God. Okay? This is exactly what Peter begins to elaborate on in this passage as he helps us to understand living with a redeemed view of authority and freedom. Okay? That the grace-empowered honor and respect for authority that Christians conduct themselves with, it, it bears witness to who God is and what he has done for us. In other words, if we want, church, if we want to compellingly preach the gospel of another kingdom, do we want to do that? Do we want to compellingly preach the gospel of another kingdom? I think we do. I think that's why we're here, right? If we want to do that, to preach the kingdom of God, where there's a living hope of eternal life, where darkness is overcome by light, and Jesus reigns with perfect justice and peace, then our lives should reflect that by way of meekness, almost like a humble aloofness to the quality and the priorities of worldly institutional authorities. That's a lot of big words. Let me just say it plainly. If we have a bad president, maybe we do. So what? So what? If you have a bad boss, who cares? We can honor and respect even bad leaders because they're not really our leader. Jesus is, right? Jesus is. This country is going away. <laughs> In case you didn't know, it, just skip to the end in Revelation, all right? So if you didn't know that, spoiler alert. This country is going away. Your job is going away. These things are temporary, friend. And let's not forget, God is using even bad presidents and bad bosses for his divine purposes. Proverbs 16, 4 says, The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. And so the prophet Isaiah says, Of undesirable geopolitical circumstances perpetuated by ungodly national leaders, he says, For the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear. And let him be your dread. That is, don't get all wrapped up in all of the crazy stuff that's happening as a result of worldly authority used poorly. Don't get all wrapped up in that. That's not your concern, Christian. 
That's not your concern. Your kingdom is not of this world. You're in exile here. You're just passing through. You don't have any stake, no eternal stake anyway, in how it ends up here. You're not a shareholder here. You don't have a vested interest in the things of the world anymore. Colossians 3, 1 through 4 says this. He says, if then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Maybe you're thinking, okay, okay. But what about, right? What about great injustices, right? What about great injustices that we witness in this life? Things like mass abortion or racism or whatever. Are we just supposed to not care? That doesn't seem very holy and redemptive. I think biblically the answer to that is of course we are to care about injustice. Of course we're to care about injustice and to do our best as Jesus' church to push back on the darkness in the world for the sake of people seeing the heart of God for them. Of course we are to care about injustice. But we also must remember there will be no injustice which God will allow to go unpunished or unreconciled in his eternal kingdom. There'll be no injustice in the end, friend. There will be none. God will take care of that. And thus, more so than we are to be concerned with trying to fix people's worldly problems on this side of eternity, we are to be focused on bringing them with us to the other side of eternity with Christ, right? Where problems will be no more. And as for undesirable work-related circumstances perpetuated by ungodly employers, the apostle Paul says in Colossians 3, he says, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord, not for men, knowing that from the Lord you'll receive the inheritance as your, as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality, right? He's saying... Jesus is your boss now. <laughs> Jesus is your boss now. And Jesus is your boss's boss now, too. That's good news, right? Uh, and so the way that you should do your work should be with that in mind, with the Lord in mind. Paul says, so work heartily, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as a reward. That means have an attitude and an ethic in your work like you're about to win the spiritual lottery if you represent Christ well. Because guess what? You are. <laughs> you are. All right. 
That was exciting to me. I don't know. You guys are tired this morning or something. I don't know. That seems like good news. So anyway, the, the way we live as the church with a redeemed view of authority and freedom is meant to be one of the most compelling things about us. It sets us apart. It makes us look different than the world in a good way. And Peter, in this passage, he outlines for us what our submission to earthly authority, whether good or bad, okay, what, what it does that makes it so compelling. So let's finish our discussion by breaking it into two categories like Peter does, submission to good earthly authority and submission to bad earthly authority. Our submission to good earthly authority does two things. First thing is it shows our faith in God to be reasonable and attractive, right? This is simple enough. Peter says, when it comes to governing authorities, God instituted them to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. And I think you could really flesh this out into any form of authority. It's there to basically motivate good behavior, okay? And so when we, as followers of Christ, have the basic MO of fear God, this is our hierarchy here, okay? Peter says, fear God, love the people of God, and honor everyone, even the emperor, right? And as a result of this commitment to holiness, we just have lives that are generally good. Our work relationships are good because we're good employees. Our marriage is happy because we love and serve our spouse. Our relationship with our kids is good because we raise them in the love and admonition of Christ. We have deep, joyful friendships with our brothers and sisters in Christ. We're good, law-abiding citizens. This reasonable, attractive way of life is meant to look compelling to the broken world around us that is largely not characterized this way. It's meant to look compelling. And Lord willing, when we have the opportunity to talk with other people about life, we explain that everything that we do really flows out, not just of a basic desire to, to be a good person, but out of the fact that our faith is in Jesus and that we strive by God's grace to live our lives pursuing his design for us. And that it's really the good news of the gospel that has brought us into this way of redemptive living. And Peter says, this submission to good earthly authority is really, it's a two-sided coin, okay? On one hand, it shows our faith in God to be reasonable and attractive. On the other hand, it exposes rebellion against God and opposition to his people to be foolish, okay? Peter says, verse 15, For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. So it's, let me make this clear, it's, it's not that we, okay, in our practical holiness, look down on others as fools, okay? To the contrary, okay? Our holiness as Christians, is not something we are trying to show off or boast in. Because apart from Christ, we know that we would have no holiness at all, right? right? Before Christ rescuing us from ourselves, we humbly remember that we were as lost and as broken as everyone else. But what Peter is saying is that as we live lives of holiness and our submission to good earthly authority, this is meant to prick 
the consciences of others who are not living that way. As we live our lives fearing God, loving one another, honoring everyone, this is meant to make the people that we have proximity to who don't know Christ, our non-believing family, friends, co-workers, and neighbors, consider that perhaps, perhaps God's ways are in fact better and wiser than their own, and then compel them to look into the claims of Christianity. The hope is that, as they do, and we have opportunities to proclaim the excellencies of Christ who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light, that non-believers would recognize their sinful rebellion against God, that they would repent, that they would trust in Jesus and begin down the path of redeemed living themselves, finding true freedom and submission to God's loving authority. Not to mention, in a world that is increasingly pre-labeling anyone who is an evangelical Christian as an unloving, hypocritical bigot, okay, when they actually see, when they actually witness the way that we live and that our submission to good authority actually leads practically to a good life as servants of God who love others and who are loved by others, their angry, slanderous claims about Jesus' people are silenced. Silenced. Right, So, I think that's all pretty easy to understand. But what about our submission to bad earthly authority? I think that's probably where we tend to get hung up because no one wants to submit to someone who they don't respect, right? No one wants to do that. Not only is that the more difficult of the two submission scenarios, but we mentioned this last week, we tend to think if we're honest, that we think of holiness kind of as an equation in our minds, okay? Like, um, if I live in a godly way, if I strive for holiness, then everything in life is just going to work out for me. <laughs> it's going to go great. Be holy. Have a great life. Be nice if it worked that way. There's just one problem with that. In that way of thinking, we forget that Jesus, who walked in perfect holiness, suffered and ultimately died by the hands of bad earthly authorities. Right. So let's recap what Peter says in the second half of our text. He says, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you've been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So to kind of condense this into a principle... Peter is saying, our submission to bad earthly authority shows Jesus to be glorious and his gospel to be credible. 
The reality, friends, is that we are, we are going to find ourselves, if we don't already, in situations where we are placed under bad earthly authorities. That's going to happen, okay? Bad political leaders, bad supervisors, bad teachers, so forth and so on. And while our tendency as people with a lot of worldly freedom is to say, I'm not complying with what you say. You can't tell me what to do. In that attitude, we reveal ourselves to be more committed to being American than being Christian. More reliant on our citizenship in this kingdom than in God's kingdom. More desirous of earthly freedom and personal authority than heavenly freedom and God's authority. We're so prone to this, aren't we? We're so prone to this. We think if we do good, then we shouldn't have to suffer. If we do good, we shouldn't have to suffer. But church, we have been saved by the fact that our Lord Jesus, who was the Son of God, who never did anything but good, and who had every right to escape suffering, he determined that he was going to submit to, suffer, and even die at the hands of bad authority for us. That's the gospel. Now, this is not me making a general call to pacifism, okay, or saying that there isn't anything we should be willing to fight for in this life. I'm not saying that. I'm simply saying with the Apostle Peter that rather than go through life trying to avoid any kind of suffering that stems from unjust treatment, we need to remember sometimes as people formed by the gospel, a willingness to submit to bad earthly authorities and suffer for it is the way of Christ. It's the way of Christ. Okay. That our willingness to endure the sorrows of being mistreated by those in authority over us and not demanding to be treated fairly is actually a testament to the glory of Christ. This is hard, I know. Not hard to understand, hard to accept. Because we want to be treated fairly, don't we? Anybody want to be treated fairly? Yeah, I, I know, yeah, I do too, okay? We want to be treated fairly, of course we do. But we also want to be like Jesus, don't we? <laughs> we want to be like Jesus too. And Jesus was not treated fairly, was he? No, he wasn't. Jesus knew that we would find ourselves in this predicament, right? <laughs> be treated fairly, be like Jesus, you know? Like, it's like the, the meme with that button. It's like, which, which one, you know? Like, <laughs> this is why he said repeatedly, a servant is not above his master. If they persecuted me, They'll persecute you. He's, he's saying, think about this. 
If you want to be like me and they mistreated me, what do you think is going to happen to you? Yeah. And so this is why Peter says, if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Get this. Get this. For to this, you have been called. Here's the reasoning. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Okay? You see, church, for people, for people to see us walk through these kinds of situations humbly, willing to be mistreated without trying to set the record straight or vindicate ourselves, while we'll have to take up our cross and die to ourselves in order to do this. I've heard that somewhere. Okay, yeah, it's clicking, right? While we'll have to take, take up our cross and die to ourselves in order to do this, there is a particular credibility that the gospel gains through our willingness to continue honoring and respecting the authority that's been set over us, even when it's not being used in a way that's right. There's a particular credibility the gospel gains in that, right? There's a peculiar display of the work of Christ in us when we are willing to endure unjust suffering that when the world sees it, will make them give pause and consider, maybe this Jesus really is who he says he is. Maybe his followers really do belong to a glorious, eternal kingdom. So what does this look like practically? Three things, quick things. When it comes to our governing officials, rather than people who, who mock them when we disagree with them and give in to the cultural whining and complaining about the effects of their bad policy decisions, you know what I'm talking about. You're on social media, okay? We should instead obey Scripture and honor them by praying for them. That's actually what the Bible tells us to do, right? It says, first of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. I understand inflation stinks, okay? We all feel that right now. I, I get it. But that does not excuse us from honoring and respecting and praying for the president and praying that we would continue to have the kind of freedom that allows us to live a peaceful life, faithfully seeking to advance the gospel while we have every right to do so, okay? That's our priority. Do you remember that? That is our priority while we're here because this is not our home. Don't get lulled into thinking this is your home. It's not. It's not. That's what Peter is repeatedly telling us. It's not. Right? 
Number two, when it comes to other lesser authorities over us, like employers, bosses, if you're military, commanding officers, whether they use their authority well or they use it poorly, we are, determ- are to determine not to work half-heartedly or gossip with our coworkers about how they need to do better, but remembering that all of the work we do in this life is not for man. It's not for man. It's for God. Thus striving to do it to his glory no matter what. And finally, number three, always remember that the gospel is our motivation for submission to any and all earthly authority that has been placed over us, okay? The the logic is simple here, okay? If we can trust Christ for an eternity where authority and freedom will both be perfect and not in tension with one another, then we can trust him now. (laughs) We can trust him now, knowing that no authority has been put in place that he doesn't know about. There is no earthly authority, good or bad, that God is not sovereignly using for our good and that will not ultimately answer to him in the end. Okay. Love how Christian blogger and writer Stacey Reok says it. She said this in a Desiring God article. She says, the ultimate question really is not, can I trust the person and authority over me? But... Am I trusting that God is leading this person to lead me? Yes, people are fallible, but God is infallible. He never makes mistakes. He establishes rulers and kingdoms. He is the beginning and the end, the alpha and the omega. And he has put those bosses, elders, parents, and husbands in the positions of authority they are in. Nothing takes him by surprise, and he can be trusted. I could have just read that. I can't say it any better than that. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you as always for your inerrant word. God, thank you for how a text like this that's so simple presses on us, God, especially as people who live in a a country that is more practically free than anywhere else in the world and in history. Father, I pray that we would not exchange true freedom from you and the gospel for a counterfeit freedom, American freedom. God, I pray that we would be thankful for the freedom we have here in America, that we're able to use that freedom to share the gospel and to advance your kingdom, but God, would we not think of that as our definition of freedom? but would we think of our freedom from sin and its consequences as true freedom and live with that freedom in mind? And God, would we not buck the authorities that are over us? Would we not resent the authorities that are placed over us in our lives, God, but remember that you have sovereignly put them there and our job is simply to honor them in our honor of you. We love you. Pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.